In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The human brain is capable of incredible achievements, but it's not perfect. Those flaws and imperfections are what make us human. And because we are influenced by our personal experiences, culture, and beliefs, we are prone to bias. On today's podcast, we will use vaccines and politics to discuss cognitive biases. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. It's a nice, beautiful Saturday morning. Sure is. In here bright and early again. And uh, I'd like to get some business out of the way first. Um, we have had a number of episodes out right now. I was looking at some of the information. We've got some pretty decent downloads, not only here in the United States, but we're also global. Lots of countries um, are involved. I think we're close to 30 countries now which is wow. really incredible how quickly this has grown. And um, I think it's important that we offer our listeners the opportunity to pri- provide feedback and also to maybe give us suggestions of how we can continue to evolve as a podcast, whether it's certain topics that they want us to dive deeper into or the things that they like or the things that we should avoid. So we do have an email address. It's radgenpodcast at gmail.com. R-A-D-G-E-N, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at gmail.com. And I encourage anyone who just doesn't want to put things through social media to email us directly. It's a little more private. And uh, we'll read out everything, and uh, we'll see what we can do to incorporate it. All right? All right. Um, Also, exciting news. Um, We have our first sponsor. And um, I have a live read for the commercial. So um, just let me pull up the script. Making a zero-sugar drink that's good enough for a distinguished educator and to earn the monster name ain't that easy. Finally, with a retooled energy blend, new sweetener system, and after hundreds of failed flavors, we got it right. Monster Zero Sugar. Help fight fatigue, improve mental performance, and focus. I love it. (laughs) I love the new mango flavor. (laughs) So that's a a little nugget for those of you that... um, Maybe aren't listening to all of our episodes. I would say go back to the sleep podcast. Um, that was also done on an early Saturday morning. I was not a part of that. That's because you didn't have a monster. I did not have a monster. Uh, but I did. Uh, I said I wasn't going to listen to it because I was concerned that you guys would have had too much fun. Um, but in the spirit of continuous improvement, I think I do need to offer some criticism. Um I think what we have here is a great podcast to get information, right? Everybody wants to listen, but they want to learn and come away with something that they can incorporate into their lives. But they continue to listen because they want to be entertained. And there's the opportunity for some humor every once in a while. So in the sleep podcast, 
there were multiple times where Roger said, if your bedroom is a place of heightened arousal. Now, <laughs> yeah, that, that was a lob for some sexy time humor. And Kelly, you just did not swing away. Yeah, I, I, felt, uh, I felt uncomfortable. Okay. So, I mean, there's easy ways to go about it. And we want to be respectful to Roger because he's a doctor and this is his podcast. It's his format. And, um, but there are some jokes and I just need to throw them out there. Number one, I've been talking to your wife. She said heightened arousal has been removed from the bedroom for years. Can you share some suggestions on what we could all do in our lives to remove that arousal? And if you're not comfortable attacking him in the future, if I'm not here, you could always take the um, self-deprecation route, okay? You can say, what if your bedroom is a place of heightened arousal for a period of two minutes, followed by intense <laughs> relaxation. Is that okay? I mean, there are multiple ways that we could have attacked that. And all right, it was an interesting podcast. I listened to it. I got something out of it, but there was a lot of opportunities for improvement. So I'm not, let's take it in. Let's reflect on it and see what we can do moving forward. Point taken. Got it. All right. Which leads us to today. Um, I love this topic. Uh, and, and somebody who comes from a marketing background, psychology definitely influences uh, a lot of what we do as marketers in terms of our messaging and then understanding how the human brain works. And there has been a lot that's happening here in the United States and I believe elsewhere in all of our other countries uh, for our listeners. And it's just because that's how the human brain is. Like we're prone to certain bias, right? So uh, the idea of a cognitive bias um, Roger, I'd like you to share maybe a brief definition of what a cognitive bias is and how this idea originated. Yeah, sure. Very simply, a cognitive bias just means uh, an error in judgment and reasoning. And we've brought this up in previous podcasts about how we've evolved and evolution in a way to better understand our thoughts, our emotions, and our behavior. But to really try to simplify it to our listening audience... Listen, we are really still animals in a lot of ways. Yeah, and yeah. genetically, you know, we've been, we've evolved and developed to survive and to procreate. And so mental shortcuts can be created in order to make decisions quickly. And they're based on, um, you know, survival. So obviously we are prone to overestimating threat because if you underestimate threat, well, then you're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so these mental shortcuts and these biases kind of reflect like where we're going to focus our attention, how we're going to make sense of it in order to make decisions quite quickly. Mm -hmm. And there's a connection between cognition and emotion. So our automatic interpretations are very tied to an emotional reaction or an emotional response. And so we are vulnerable as human beings to extremes, extremes in, in thinking and in beliefs and reactions. And our emotions can be heightened from, for other people to take advantage of them. And you see this historically um, throughout the evolution of, of countries and cultures and groups, that there are leaders, there are governments that can take advantage of groups of people by pushing them to an extreme in efforts to better control. And we can get into that more when we're talking about politics, but this, the short answer here for your question is be aware that we are all 
subject to distortions in thinking mm-hmm. and errors yeah. in logic and judgment because of those inherent biases. I remember um, you listen to Freakonomics podcast mm-hmm. also and do a lot of reading. Um, Daniel Kahneman has been on a, a number of episodes and they interview him quite often. And, and I believe he came up with the cognitive bias um, back in like the seventies. And I, and I believe I he won a Nobel prize. Yeah, I don't think he came up with it. He's been a researcher. A researcher. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I listened to him speak quite a few times through that podcast and it, and it led me down some, some paths. And I was, uh, had read a book about neuroscience and, and marketing. And there were some chapters in there focused on the brain and brain development over our entire evolution. Uh, and we've touched on parts of the brain in, in, in previous episodes, your amygdala, which is your fight or flight, right? That was probably one of the first parts of your brain that developed. And then the last one to develop over time is that prefrontal cortex. And that's the area where um, a lot of this rational thinking happens. And it hasn't evolved that much yet. But there are there are ways that we can continue to acknowledge that that's probably the last part of our brain that is factored into decision making and how we can put in a little more effort to make sure that we're making the right decisions for us personally is really how I want to kind of evolve this conversation. And we were using um, politics and vaccines to really have a nice debate and discussion about how interpretation of information can can sway to yeah. those extremes. Yeah, and I think it's really important when we start talking about biases that we help our listening audience understand how that has benefited us through evolution. So there's a reason that groupthink exists or confirmation bias, Mm -hmm. why we have these heuristics and shortcuts. What you're seeing in culture with us being divided and the role of social media is a great example of how human beings can be controlled and it doesn't always have to fit evidence so let's get into the, the, the details of this. Can I, um, I'm going to share a link through our show notes. I found a, a really great, I mean, reading's easy, but also um, when you're looking at some, a visual representation of that information, like an infographic, there was um, from the uh, Daniel Kahneman and what's the name, it's uh, Sversky, um, in that 1970s, uh, when they kind of first introduced the idea of cognitive bias, there's an image that shows all of the bias that we're prone to. Um, and the ones that uh, it focuses on social, financial, uh, our failure to estimate, and even like short-termism. But the ones that I think are more relevant to this conversation are the ones that are more social, right? So you touched on the bandwagon effect, uh, the blind bias, you know, viewing oneself as less biased than others. And then um, the one that I'd like to get into now is this reactive devaluation and devaluing an idea because it originated from an adversary or opponent. It's like the backfire effect as well. What, tell, talk me, talk to us about that. What when, is, when an idea, when you have an, an, a belief in your head, mm-hmm. um, somebody comes out and challenges that with factual information, with uh, information that is credible, and you react to that information, not with a rational, oh my gosh, I should really look at that, but you actually get angry that the person is bringing that in. The backfire effect makes you dig in even deeper into your bias, into your belief. Mm-hmm. So, which makes you irrational because you're now unwilling to listen to new 
evidence and new information to move forward. In social psychology, this is called naive realism. And it's this human tendency to believe that the way we see the world around us objectively and the people who disagree with us, they are the ones who are uninformed. And so they're irrational and they're biased. And so we're really prone to black and white thinking, mm-hmm. right? So you're, the confirmation bias perspective is you're going to seek out information and attend to all evidence that supports the way you think about it yeah. while disregarding other evidence. Mm-hmm. Fellas, I'm coming in this morning with a headache. I, what I spent three hours last night yeah. um, going through some data and watching some videos and podcasts of current data on the status of the Delta variant and vaccinations. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a biologist who I like to listen to. Uh, her name is Dr. Rhonda Patrick. You know, I started listening to her years ago and just getting some updated science on, you know, nutrition, exercise, sauna, sun exposure, um, things like that. But she's right now, she is on the, um, you know, the forefront of trying to present data on vaccinations and COVID-19. And there's a great, um, there's a great YouTube and podcast that's out there that just presents data. It's called MedCram. Um, really interesting. Different physicians. Med, MedCram? MedCram. Okay. Um, and I'm not even aware of all the doctor's names, but a yeah. lot of experts come in. And it's a presentation of data mm-hmm. because that's what I want. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do or how to think. I want a presentation of data so I can begin to analyze risks and benefits. Yeah. Right? So I spent all these hours last night kind of going through all this data on um, you know, the relative safety, efficacy, and the basically the risk-benefit analysis of vaccinations and mm-hmm. what it does to stop a pandemic. I, I learned a lot. But here's, this, here's what like, my takeaway is and the conclusion. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot of nuance. Um, there's risk-benefit profiles that exist. Um, it seems to be very effective for people in a certain at-risk category. And then the younger you get, the healthier you get, that risk-benefit ratio seems to shift. Um, I learned that each person is different in the way that a medical intervention affects them. Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't learn that. We all know that, right? So anytime somebody in a medical authority or a politician tries to put things in very simple terms, all or nothing, do this, don't do this, or tries to split you into a group, right? The vaccinated, the unvaccinated, science, anti-science, vaccinated, the anti-vax. That is purposeful. That's not based on scientific data and evidence. That's based on politics and that's based on control. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't trust anyone who tries to push you to an extreme. And one of the benefits of today's podcast is to try to learn the skills for us to protect ourselves against extremes in thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of terms are going to be thrown out there. You know, misinformation, which has become information that doesn't fit the narrative of the politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that's bothered me the most, 
and you'll see this on social media, and you'll see this in news reports. Experts say, experts reveal, so they use the word expert, but there is no data, there's no study that you can access in the article or that is followed up on the news report. That's true. It's just saying experts say. And so what that does is it automatically triggers what's called an authority bias. An authority bias is our tendency to attribute greater accuracy to an opinion of an established authority figure. And then we are more likely to be influenced by that authority figure. But in my world, and one of the reasons why we're, we're divided, politicians and government bureaucrats are not authority for me. They may be for a large portion of the population. But what is an authority figure for me is somebody who has an extensive knowledge of science and research, can communicate to me the nuance, the risks, the benefits, and most importantly, what they do not know. Because I can trust people who say, this we don't know, or I'm not sure yet. Yeah. I don't trust people who definitively say something and then tell you to do it right. and don't have, uh, can't speak to the complexity of the issue. So we had uh, talked about the term this, this week with rhetoric and communication in the class about gaslighting and that idea that you can manipulate, well, utilizing language. I mean, the, the term I think comes from a play, uh, Broadway play, um, where the husband was, flickering down the gaslight uh, lamps and his wife was saying, did you see that? You know, and, and he's like, no, you're going crazy. Like almost as if to say, I'm going to create an environment where anything you question, you're crazy and you should feel crazy for ever questioning me. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I feel like we're in that kind of that environment with uh, people that are trying to come out, ask proper questions and they're being told that they're crazy. Well, that happens in abusive relationships, right? It's like um, somebody hurts another person, maybe even physically, and then they're blamed for it. You know, you did it. Yeah. You know, you made me do it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it can, you know, really disrupt somebody's reality. You know, they, they don't even understand what's real. Like, you know, we'll work with domestic violence victims, generally women, and they're almost conditioned to believe like that's what love is, Right. They care so much. That's why they did that. No one else could really love me. And there's this gaslighting effect that, that occurs. And they, can't, they learn not to trust their own reality. And that, that, that factor of like confusing people to not trust their own reality is certainly happening right now. Well, the abundance of information and the misinformation coming from both sides yeah. is extremely confusing. And... I think it's very hard for a lot of people to put time and effort into trying to find the correct information um, due to the amount of overwhelming data that exists out there. And there's a couple things that you touched on um, when you started off. Let's just, can we start with data first? Um, I can go to all these websites. I can review data, see what's happening, trends over time. And let's use the virus as the example and vaccines. But all data is showing you is is what has happened, right? And when you talk about the nuance, and maybe that's why you really got a lot out of the um, the podcast or the video that you were watching last night in preparation from this, because those nuances are what's important. It's the whys. 
and and most reporting and most anything that you listen to on the news or you're reading is only saying what has happened but not saying why it's happened and and that's what's really hard to find and most people start making assumptions off of the what i have a great example when they talk about the delta variant and its impact on 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 kids mm-hmm. i mean let's say and this isn't true but let's just say for um for clarity if if you have a very small percentage of of young people and children who are affected by the 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 delta variant like it's very rare which is true that's true it's very rare and um there's an increase like let's say it doubles let's say it doubles from 10 kids to 20 right 20 is still extremely rare right but it's a it's what it's a hundred percent increase yeah the use of the term right yeah, yeah. so you you can be manipulated with language yes and that data can be utilized as a way of trying to um influence you when the data doesn't actually fit. So, I mean, I walked away from looking at that data and I didn't have more questions. I, it kind of solidified some of my beliefs around this, that there is a risk profile. And we talked about this early on in our podcast. There's a risk profile that exists. And from everything I understand, you know, getting a vaccine in that group is a wise health decision, right? Just based on their risk profile. And then when you started looking at some of the other data, especially for young people or anyone who's actually been exposed to the virus and recovered, I got serious questions about getting a vaccine for them based on a risk profile. It doesn't mean it's not the right decision. It's just that don't know yet, right? There's so much uncertainty. And that, that uncertainty isn't discussed in, in media because there is a an agenda and you know you never let a crisis go to waste well that was a famous politician that is still active said that <laughs> never let a crisis go to waste and you can use that for anything anything yeah. anything <laughs> yes um so we're, you're talking about personal rest risk assessment right so um and that's the nuance and it's hard to find that nuance to make a personal decision for yourself in a world where there's so much information. Well, I'm so, I'm, I'm so scared of this because um, the people who are more prone to extremes in thinking and who are more fear-based are going to be more likely to give up individual rights and freedoms. Like, I am a believer in informed consent as a human rights issue. Now, let's think about that. Informed consent. That respects your right as an individual to make important health decisions for you or your children. Mm-hmm. You don't want to give up that right, right? You, that is something that is well-earned and deserved in a free society where there was blood that was shed over issues such as this. Can we clarify a little bit? Because you, with the informed consent, are you saying now if I walk into um, a doctor's office and they're going to prescribe me with any type of medication, they're responsible for informing me of any adverse effects that medication would have on me in the future. Is that something that, is that part of it? Because I want you to clarify what informed consent is for the audience and me. Sure, yeah. Informed consent is that there is a legal and ethical responsibility of healthcare professionals to provide you information about the relative effectiveness of that intervention, 
the research that supports it, to also talk about the relative risks and alternative treatments, and then respect your right legally to choose that intervention based on that, informa- based on that information. So think about the responsibility. The responsibility of a healthcare professional, and Sean, you're talking about the overwhelming amount of data and information that, that's out there, that's ever-evolving, mm-hmm. right? And so if that's the case, informed consent would also include what we don't know. And we have to speak to the people who are hesitant to get vaccines, actually speak for them, because in the division right now, and what the politicians and the bureaucrats are attempting to do is to try to divide and put people who are hesitant to get a vaccine right now into a category of being ignorant, uninformed, and potentially dangerous to the vaccinated group. I'm... As a policymaker, all right. Let's. I'm trying to put myself. Wait, are you denying that? No, like, I'm not. I, denying. Saw, I saw that little sigh there. Like, like, not, like that's not no. truth. Like, is it, like I think we can all accept that to be truth. Yeah. I yes, I accept that to be true. Okay. Uh, so then, let me finish my point. If that is the case, right? And science is evolving, and it's an evolving process. The scientific process. Right. It's evolving. It's not settled. It will always evolve. Right. Vaccinations traditionally have taken 10 to 15 years to be brought to market. And there's multiple reasons for that. Like one of them is long-term studies are necessary. Um, But there's also challenges economically in being able to bring them to market, right? You have to build the factories, you have to build the manufacturing. And so absolutely did we push that process in an effective way, right? Like through all the government um, funding, we were able to push that. But there's still a lot we don't know, right? We don't know these vaccines affect on childbearing females or pregnant females. We don't know the long-term outcomes. And if there's anything about history and uh, science in general, is what, what is believed to be true at one time doesn't always make it true years later. So the fact that people are hesitant to get a vaccine and are in a certain profile, whether that's age and health status, and they're determining individual risk for themselves, their hesitancy to get a vaccine has nothing to do with ignorance. It actually has to do with um, strong, logical examination and choice. Because the risk... See, uh, that's where I'm, I'm going to use the bias... Um to go against you here because, you know, we started off this conversation talking about how our brain works and the prefrontal cortex is that rational thinking. And I don't think a lot of people are using that part of the brain. I think they're reacting emotionally. And um, I I better apply that to this particular situation. So let's let's throw a scenario at you. Okay. Okay. Let's let's do through. um, No, I have the scenario. Okay. Okay. Um, You're a parent of a 17 year old. Yeah who was exposed to COVID, yes. recovered, and has broad-based immunity and is protected against a disease. So two things are happening right now. Yep. Right? They've been exposed and recovered. Yep. They have broad-based immunity, and they're in a, a category of risk that is extremely small, right, to begin with. Okay. 
Now, if you're that parent, and that's who I am, right? Mm-hmm. I have a 17-year-old who's been exposed. I have a 15-year-old that's been exposed. I have a 20-year-old who's been exposed. I've been exposed. My wife's been exposed. My entire family has had COVID and recovered from it before vaccines were available. Yep. And you can get the antibody tests, yep. and which are $10 at a local lab here. And you can see you have broad-based immunity. I don't want to say broad-based immunity. You have the... Um, you stole the antibodies. You have the antibodies, right? And there's recent research here that comes out of uh, Israel, which demonstrates, and I'm just going to go the, the conclusion after the study, the natural immunity confirms longer lasting and stronger protection against infection, symptomatic disease, and hospitalization caused by the Delta variant. And in looking at other data last night, it's also clear that we know now that if you've recovered from the disease, even against the Alpha variant, you had the same kind of protection as if someone was provided um, those vaccines. And now we know with the Delta variant, for whatever reason, I'm sure their scientists can explain this, if you recovered from COVID, you have better protection against the Delta variant than the vaccines. This seems to be, now science is always evolving, this is the data we're getting right now. So you're a parent of that 17-year-old. Tell me how your hesitancy to get a vaccine is based on emotion and not data or evidence. Like, so you're, there's a bias at play. Well, I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying right now. If I were in your situation, I'd be doing the same thing. But you've done an enormous amount of research. You looked into this. You wanted to understand it. And I don't believe a lot of people are willing to put the time and effort into finding out that answer. And the way that the, uh, the media and the discussions happening from policymakers is they've separated into two groups, vaccinated, unvaccinated. But we do know that there are nuances. As policymakers, you can't do a policy based on nuance. It's, it gets extremely complicated, and I'm sure there's a number of factors that prevent anything from ever really happening if you have your, your policies fragmented with different tactics and, and instructions about what you should be doing if you're broken up into five different groups. I'm going to have to call you out, and you're going to have to explain your, your, okay. your rationale. As a policymaker, you have to ignore nuance. You got to defend that. Well, what you're talking about is um, we have a vaccine that is free for the public. All you have to do is get it if you're unvaccinated. What you're talking about is I have already been exposed. I have the antibodies. So that would require a whole nother level of uh, testing and um, some type of uh, information data sharing that has like HIPAA compliance factors, possibly. Uh, we are sharing personal information that's healthcare related. Yeah, so you're why right. I, that's way too complicated for my body. In, in, a, in a pandemic, though, when you're trying to get things Sean, to. What, wouldn't a better policy have been if we can get people tested for antibodies and they're. Yes. Okay, then why isn't that a policy? That's my. Why is that not happening? If it's an easy $10 test, why, why don't we make them free? And why don't we allow people and encourage them to go get tested? I don't know when the antibody test came out. Do we know? Well, it doesn't matter. At this point, let's just say they exist and let's say they are only if they're only ten dollars well that might be through through insurance but why aren't we encouraging that and using government taxpayer funded money to say go get tested for your antibodies and if you have a large number of individuals uh that actually have antibodies against them what are we you know in in certain regions i'm that would be a policy that that could actually work I, I the agree. policy that's currently going on is failing 
Isn't that demonstrate? Isn't Sean demonstrating a cognitive bias right now? It's, yes, it's and the, that's what I want. It's the authority bias, <laughs> yeah. and we've seen this from Sean prior and before. Wait a minute, what do you mean he, authority bias? <laughs> he 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 tends to put people who have reached a certain status in society, whether it be a politician or it be a public health official. I didn't say he, I. He put them at a, at a, on, a, on a pedestal, and what he'll do is he'll assume positive intention to that individual no, based I, on their status. If you go back so, to what I said. So, oh, the face is red over here. <laughs> if you go back to what I said, if I were to put myself into the position of a policymaker and I'm trying to understand the decisions that have been made and what were uh, what has unfolded, I agree with everything you're saying, but I do understand it's impossible for our government to do anything nuanced because it, it's impossible. It's nearly right now in this country, the it, way that our government works is it, no, they can't it, get anything it, done. It, it's impossible for a politician who is pandering Policy to a makers. base and trying to control people in order for votes and power to be nuanced, because guess what? Nuance, even if it's accurate and honest, isn't going to confer votes. Politicians right now are creating the problem in this country. Yes, they are. And the experts that they're sending to you are nothing more than political hacks. And there is a lot of of doctors, epidemiologists, who are being censored with all this information. That's frightening. Absolutely frightening. So let's bring this back to a bias. Um, the one that I brought up earlier is reactive devaluation. Devaluing an idea because it originated from an adversary or opponent. If the Republicans were currently in office and we had a Republican president, what do you think the position of vaccination would be in this country? I think it would be opposite, right? I do. I, think, I do, too. Yeah. I believe that uh, Republicans would be primarily the vaccinated population and Democrats would push back against it or those left-leaning or liberal because of fear. Well, we, we know this from a lot of the clips leading up to the, the election, right? When, yes. it, when the election was still in doubt, you heard the politicians say they would never trust a vaccine that came from a Donald Trump um, well, that's Harris and mentioned. they're all on video. This is what I don't understand about our culture. They're all on video over a year ago saying the exact opposite of what they're saying now. Yeah. And we talk about there are policymakers and people go, well, you should trust them. How do I trust individuals that sit there and say one thing one year ago, completely do a 180 without any science, without anything backing them? And then I'm supposed to now just say, oh, listen to them. That's what I don't understand about our society and why we can't have that conversation. Yes. So that, that was the vice presidential debate. It was October 7th. It yeah. was 2020. It was um, now our vice president, Harris. And it was the at the time, Vice President Mike Pence. She came out and she said, if Donald Trump tells us that we should take it, I'm not taking it. And that's when Pence replied, stop playing politics with people's lives. Your continuous undermining of confidence in a vaccine is just unacceptable. Now, that is the clip that has gone more famous and, and that we've all seen. And there's been lots of the clips. But the, the nuance in there is that she followed it up and she said that she would be the first in line if Dr. Fauci said we should take it. <laughs> so now let's remember, like, that's the thing that gets overlooked. All right. So now he is still part of of the um in the united states he's still very much involved in uh what's uh whatever his role he, is i'm he, sorry it's a so for example like he is everything that is wrong with 
Because he's a bureaucrat. Uh, this process, well, he's a bureaucrat right? making policy for everyone but, else. He's but, not elected. He's not legislator. But he is somebody who is not talking about nuance. And he consistently will make statements publicly that are not aligned with the uncertainty, what we don't know, and where the science is currently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't trust that. Actually, I'm not going to really, I'm going to have a difficult time trusting government health officials. And for the record, I'm not on any team, right? I am uh, anti-two-party system. I, I'm, I'm the same way. Right? And because I think a two-party system pushes people um, to have to pick a team, right? And then we know that there's biases that exist. Mm-hmm. So it stops what's called dialectical thinking. And it pushes us to all of these biases. Dialectical thinking is the ability to accept multiple truths can occur at the same time. It allows us to walk the middle path from extremes, the gray that exists in the black and white. If, if anyone out there believes that vaccines should be mandated and everyone should take them, you are on the extreme because the science does not fit that. An ethical and honest uh, politicians or scientists or experts in the field will be able to articulate that. I'm a clinical psychologist. Don't take your vaccine advice from me, right? But there is information that exists out there from people who are very well educated, actually dedicated their entire lives to things just like this. And those people are able to talk about those nuances. And we want to be able to get our our information from people that we trust and we want to have the freedom to be able to make decisions for our own healthcare, our own bodies. But there's censorship going on of those individuals that are trying to point that out. Do you remember that? I can't remember who tweeted it, but it was a doctor, a very credible doctor that basically said, if you believe that all people getting vaccinated is just as unreal, you know, and and yet some shouldn't, you know what I mean? Like he just tried to point out that there's two truths. There's two truths. And he was... He was put off of Twitter. All right. This is what I need you guys to explain to me. I feel like I'm a fairly reasonable man, right? And I'm going to try to to understand both sides. But someone has to explain to me the science, the reason, the logic behind uh, the vaccinated need to be protected from the unvaccinated. I can't wrap my head around it. What's the logic behind it? I I am also not a scientist or a virologist, but my understanding of why even people who were not at risk should get vaccinated is that viruses continue to evolve. And as they evolve, there's new strains. Those new strains can become more contagious, which would put others at risk. So the sooner you get vaccinated, it would slow down the amount of variants that would evolve over time and be able to become potentially more uh, more deadly or more contagious. So I've been looking for that, right? I've yeah. been trying to find something that supports that. And it seems like there, there, there might be some, there is some truth to that. Um, but what obviously what we found out now is that you can still, even with a vaccine, as it evolved to the Delta variant, you can still transmit it and you can still develop illness. So it didn't really play out that way, right? Yeah. Um, And I think we see this in a lot of respiratory viruses, don't we? That um, 
we learn to live with them. And if you if you like read into the literature of the evolution of viruses and how they adapt, that in time as they mutate, they become more transmittable, um, but really less. Uh, is it viral? Is that the word? Yes, uh, uh, deadly. Deadly. Yeah. So uh, I mean. Because let's, let's talk because, about bias. Because because right? a, a virus doesn't want to kill its host, right? No, it doesn't. It wants to continue. It wants to survive. Yeah. So we're going to see that natural process. Um, isn't everybody going to be exposed to COVID? Yes. Everyone will have it. I would imagine eventually. Yeah. So um, here's here's another bias, right? Recency bias. Mm -hmm. Now viruses existed for hundreds of millions of years. We only discovered them what in like the last 150 or 200 years. We've only been studying them for a period of. 75, 80 years, maybe. So we're using a very small window over the course of an entire existence of a virus or viruses to determine how we think they will always react. So I think that's the scientific process and the nuance that a lot of scientists are go, well, we don't know everything yet. But historically, what we've seen as viruses continue to evolve, that they become more contagious and less dead. So can we all agree that politicians mandating a vaccine is both unscientific and potentially um, undermines people's uh, willingness to actually get it? Well, I think that's going to be part of that bias that people have against politicians. Do you trust the people that are creating the policy? And if you do, then maybe you would have more people not maybe not being so hesitant, but I, I think, I think the conversation has to go there. There's two different ways of looking at it, but I, I again, look at our politicians. Do we have faith and trust on both sides of the spectrum in our politicians? And if, if you say yes, or you trust them because you trust them, then obviously you're going to look at a health crisis way differently. You're going to say they're, they're there to help me and I do trust them. I don't think that the vast majority of our population does trust them, though. And I think... I think we're way too divided. Yeah. I, I, I think you, people trust the team. You know, it's like we're, we're, you yeah. trust the team that you're on. And then you're filtered through all that information. But I still want to go back to that, that point, right? So I'm concerned about the messaging. So one thing, you know, in, in my area of expertise is I'm interested in how um, human behavior can be shaped or even potentially manipulated. Um, I actually, you know, do believe vaccines are a huge advancement scientifically um, in, for human beings, right? I, I think they save lives. And I think generally that they're safe and effective. It's so, one of the greatest scientific discoveries, yeah, probably top three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, I don't want in any way come across here as being anti-vax because I'm not like not even close. Right. Um, but boy, some of the messaging scares me. So if, if you actually did believe in the relative value of, of vaccination of COVID, why would you undermine its protection by saying that if you're vaccinated, someone who's unvaccinated can hurt you and you still don't have any of the individual like freedoms to return? Like uh, you still have to, to wear a mask. You still have to keep distance. Your life still should be restricted. Doesn't that undermine the actual value of the of the vaccine? Doesn't that make you concerned or nervous? Like if you were on the fence. Well, we're thinking about right now, but let's look forward. 
one year from now, if they push through a mandate and everybody gets vaccinated. And no, well, that will never, you know, that will never happen. Not everybody will get vaccinated. And, and there, there, there will be such widespread opposition that we're looking at real significant conflict. I agree with that. I think you're going to have a lot of battles. Yeah. So yeah. right now we're at, um, cause not everyone just does, you know, what they're told like you do. Well, we got <laughs> right now we're at six here in the United States, 63% vaccination. And that's at least one shot. Um, fully vaccinated is about 54%, I believe. There are other countries that are pushing mandates for vaccines and, and they see an increase of about 10%. Um, there's a percentage of the United States population that was exposed and has some natural antibodies. I, I do believe- Some? Uh, significant. It depends. What well, do you mean it, depends? The number, depends. Of, the number of cases versus- when you're following those numbers, that's a, that's a tremendous amount. And how many people didn't actually get tested? There's a tremendous amount of people that had COVID yeah. that have antibodies that no one wants to seem to talk about. Why are no wait? No, if you're from a public the, health perspective, why aren't we talking about that? There, there were people that were um, infected with COVID early on. Yeah, and they did that. Um, you know, they gave blood or plasma that was going towards what is it? The I, I don't know how it's used, uh, but they continue to get tested. But then over a period of time, they didn't have the same antibody levels that they had earlier on so they were no longer eligible to contribute to contribute um to that um that yeah, plasma. i think there's something sean called t-cell immunity so like and listen i'm not an expert on on this but um you know there there it, there's something about the testing of antibodies and something that happens about the memory in the cell t-cell immunity like it gets much more complicated than that um, and I don't think we should go back to one year because I know there was a lot of like reports that it's possible that you could be exposed and then not have immunity. And that may be true. And science evolves. I think where we're at right now is the evidence does demonstrate that if you've been exposed and, and recovered, you have more broad based protection than if you were vaccinated. Let me go back to my point, though, okay. is that I believe they're going to eventually push through some type of booster. And if you push through a mandate now, lost and yesterday, then, they, they did you see what? 65 and over are allowed. But yesterday they voted very overwhelmingly not to because of the adverse reactions for now. I'm just saying that's, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty now. big deal that people, you that's, know, yeah, that's the CDC. I know. I know. I saw that's that. That's government actually. If, if, if was the, it the FDA, FDA, I'm oh, sorry, FDA. Yeah. Um, that's, go that's government. So when you have our American government, kind of take a stand that we don't have any scientific data for boosters that makes you feel a little bit better. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. So, I mean, I go back to any type of decision. There's no perfect solution. There's only trade-offs, right? Could we all agree on that? There's no perfect solution. I think that's our well, conversation. That, it's yes. uh, so the gray area. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So let's, um, so that takes us back to bias. Mm -hmm. Here's a question on just based off of what he just said with gray area, do human beings, because a gray area to me makes sense, but to most people, gray areas. Oh no! Yeah, it's for us. For us human beings, it's so uncomfortable to sit with the uncertainty. So can I? Why, touch why on a am I things? okay with it? Like, why do I like the fact that there are two truths? I'm serious. I'm being very. I like looking. I can see and feel like there is always going to be a gray area. There's never necessarily going yeah. to be, but I'm okay with that. You're telling me that the vast majority of human beings don't have that. I, it's it's what we're vulnerable or prone to, right? Like, it's listen. Fear is designed to protect us, and there's greater acceptance of uncertainty that that exists. 
So maybe it's part of like how you've evolved and developed intellectually, right? Um, for me, some monster energy drinks. <laughs> <laughs> like we talked, but we touched on this earlier. There are there are people who who will, you know, live their whole life trying to protect themselves from threat, and they never really live. And then there's people who take extraordinary risks because they see, you know, life is very time limited. It's it's, it's up to your it's you're up to your personal perception, right? So I mean, you already said it. So we're talking about the virus and exposure, and. Um, we all agreed that eventually everybody will be exposed to the virus, right? So what we're talking about and and everything that's unfolded over the last 18 months are a number of measures to try and prevent a catastrophe from happening, right? So let's use masks as an example. Are masks 100% effective? 100%? Are masks 0% effective? Um, So I I, actually, there was, there's two studies that came out, um, I heard someone talking about it. There was a Danish study that came out in March 2021. So we have to distinguish, right? Like, I think what the majority of people wear are cloth masks. Yes. Right? Yep. And there is a, I think there's a difference between a cloth mask, um, those kind of, and those surgical masks, and the N95, right? Yes, completely. All right. All right. And then those are the nuances that are important. And that's why we have to speak to nuances. Yes. So um, I, 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 Read the study. I didn't read the whole thing. I looked at some uh, some bullet points. There's a Danish study came out in 2021. It was highly anticipated. Lots of people were waiting for it because it was a randomized control, and um, it it came out and it didn't have the results that pro mask people were looking for. So now they're dismissing it because it did not have those anticipated results. Now it didn't come back as 100% effective. It didn't come back as 0% effective. It came back at a roughly 20% effective. And now there's another study that recently came out with about 600,000 people, and it was about 9% effective. But what we're talking about are a number of things that have been instituted to mitigate on the margins. So when you're talking about a pandemic situation, those margins can have a significant impact to slow things down and give you more time. But I really truly believe that when we're talking about all these things that have been happening, it's about control. Right, we're talking about putting control on people. I believe it's to present or, or to prevent one thing, and that's social unrest. Because when people are put in a position where they have no job, no income, um, no prospects for a better life, and that was what was happening in the global economy, things were getting shut down. They often resort to violence. I, Historically, I, that's happened. I over find time. you dangerously naive. Really? Explain. Yeah, I find you dangerously naive because almost you, when when people make broad-based decisions um, onto the lives of others, people who are in positions of power, you almost universally apply positive or helpful intent. Like there's always a good reason. And historically, what we know about human nature is that doesn't fit. Those people who are going to dedicate their lives for power, towards power, are more likely to fit into this realm of individual called psychopathy, which is the, um, really the inability to be able to experience human em- empathy. And everything about your life is driven to be in a power position. And we see this across animal groups um, with alphas in groups that they'll hoard resources they'll kill off young 
and they'll uh, also they'll hoard the, the females for mating. And that exists in the human population too. And psychologists and uh, those who, uh, who are in the field of criminology and so forth, you, they're constantly like exposed to that dark side of like thinking. Like I'd actually we, like to get into this in the future. It podcast. is a great podcast. Yeah. There's, there's, everything's a spectrum, right? So you have one side, psychopathy. The other side would be what, like an empath? I don't think you, yeah. I don't think you totally understand the inner workings of someone whose life quest is, is for power. And that power exists on, on, on it, can, it can be from you know, CEOs of major companies to politicians to actors, entertainers. What drives those people is not your best interest. They don't care about you or your family or your, or your health. In fact, they don't even have the capacity for it. Everything feeds their own agendas and needs. And if you deny that that exists, then you're dangerously naive to history and you're dangerously naive to what exists and walks around you. There is danger you know, I, I hate using the word evil because it actually, you know, puts you into conversations about religion and that divides people. But the, the evil exists. And so I, I disagree with your comment about they're, they're making measures on the margins to prevent civil unrest because there's nothing about what I know about the communication and the messages and the censorship that would prevent civil unrest. It's actually the opposite. Wait, we've now, experienced quite a bit of civil I would, unrest. I would imagine that they, I, I would think the opposite. I don't think it's about preventing. I think it's about causing. And the cause of civil unrest, if you have civil unrest, that, that allows any government entity to control even further because you're going to have to contain whatever. Let's just say it's a city. Let's say it's a region. I just think that that leads to more control. So I don't know that if you believe what Roger just said, that there is, you know, almost like this allure of power and then a sense of I'm going to stay there. And I would think you would, you would want civil unrest to an extent where you start to control but, the populace. Right, so are you aware of what our own government has done um, with other countries and third world countries? Sean, if you can read about the CIA and how they use these psychological tactics, um, they use these same messagings in other countries in order to support coups. Other governments are create, using it against us right to, now. To create. To fraction It's us. to create civil unrest, which yes. is, is my point. And, and it's the, the fact that you said that the intention is to quell civil unrest is, is, yes. is, is from, what's dangerously naive. From a mask, from the symbolic nature of a mask. That is one of them. There's been a number of measures that they've done. They're giving money away to an entire group of people to stay at home. That's, that is to keep them from rising up and trying to overthrow their local governments or their states or city. It happened in Los Angeles. It happened in Portland. It happened in Seattle. And a lot of that stuff was, was happening. I was experiencing it when I was in Los Angeles. And that social unrest, they attacked you know, communities of wealth and prosperity. I, I'm not really sure what point you're arguing now. That a lot of these things that um, are currently happening uh, in terms of the policy decisions of our government is to try and control people. Yes, I think we're in agreement there. Okay, but there's another component of masks and control. And um, there's a, a um, I listen to, uh, you might be surprised, I really like Dennis Prager. 
Mm. Um, I listened to him. I, I love the way that he um, he makes an argument. He's very educated. And he had Dr. Scott Atlas, who was a former professor in chief. Prager, uh, uh, Prager U is also now banned. Yes, you know, I know. And then, then that's the thing when we talk about censorship that is extremely frightening. Frightening. Because uh, this Scott Atlas has been heavily censored, and he's been vocalizing concerns about the scientific uh, process. Uh, but when he was talking about mask wearing, even though it's not 100% effective, it's not 0% effective, people are wearing it because it makes them feel like they have some control. Yeah, it, it is. It's more about emotion than safety. Yes. And one of my, my concerns, I've talked about this in previous podcasts, is what we're doing to children. Right, because there, when we talk about the risk benefit, there are tremendous risks to the mental health uh, and the development of children and adolescents when widespread control measures on the margins that provide little benefit to a population that's not highly at risk, and then you begin to identify them to the fear group. Right, like that's what happens. You provoke the group of people who are really um, fear-based and who will go to the extremes where now we now, now now there's a strong belief that like children are at at risk of potentially even death and none of the data suggests that and people don't realize that not too long ago you let your children go to daycare and schools and the risk to RSV significantly you know outweighed anything that's happening right now and that's where the biases exist to overestimation of risk allows you to make a poor decision a greater decision. So when you talk about public health, you can't just think about the prevention of a virus. You have to think about quality of life, your purpose in life. Um, you have to think about the implications for personal freedom, mental health, um, your ability to be able to um, continue in, on your path to what, what is important for you in your, in your own career and your own family, like the restrictions of public health is much greater than a prevent prevention of a virus. And so when you're starting to divide people into these groups and push to these extremes, you're seeing a lot of people now are um, ignoring any other data or information that is going to compete with the way they, that they're being told or what they're being told. So fear, can we, does fear correlate with Bias. In other words, you know, you have different emotions yep. and then emotions will probably help create a bias in, in your brain. And is fear probably the strongest one that will create a bias? Of course. Yeah. Right. Emotion clouds judgment. Because that's your amygdala. Yeah. Right. Emotion will cloud personal judgment. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think we've kind of strongly kind of communicated various positions here. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I, can we take the conversation to... How do we prevent yes, and protect ourselves yeah, from, yes. from these biases? We need to offer suggestions. Our brain is prone to certain bias yeah. um, in any decision-making. So what do we do to overcome that? So, um, you know, one of the things when it comes to biases is you have to have a willingness to attend to information that, um, that you don't agree with or you don't believe. Mm. If you don't have a willingness, well, then you are subject to confirmation bias. Kelly, as an educator, um, do debate clubs still exist? We have a debate team. Oh, you do? Very good debate team. Okay. The teacher's very good, yeah. And I would imagine some of those students have to take a position that they don't necessarily agree with as part of the debate process. Correct. Now, I wonder if we're seeing a decrease well, in... Wait, in I shouldn't say that. So I, 
I believe so, but I will check on that for you. But you, you get a resolve for the year, usually okay. one or two. But there's always an, an, an argument again. So Correct. somebody has to right. take a position right. they may not agree yes. with. Like, and, and I yeah. think the debate process is a great example of what we should all be doing internally when we're making our own decisions. How about this? Seek to find the truth in the competing argument. Yeah. So I'm going to offer some suggestions. Um, everybody... Find a topic you're interested in. Go into your Google search history and see how you're phrasing things. Rephrase it the opposite and then see what comes up. Yeah. So you have to have you have to have a willingness and then you have to seek to find the truth in the argument. So if you're on if we talk about this in terms of dialectical extremes, if you're on one dialectical extreme, you almost have to go to the other dialectical extreme mm-hmm. to bring closer to the middle. And I think you, we all have to accept that multiple truths can exist at the same time. Let me give you an example. Vaccines can be life-saving. Mm-hmm. Vaccines can be harmful. Mm-hmm. They both exist. Because that's truth. Right? And Sean and I were talking about this last night. Although statistically rare, people die from vaccines. People become disabled from vaccines. We've seen it here at our practice. That doesn't necessarily mean when you talk about risk benefits that vaccinations for wide range conditions aren't the right choice statistically, right? But they exist. And so if we're going to be in the gray, you want to ask yourself if somebody it has extremely low risk of developing any complications to this virus. And they're young and they're healthy or they've been recovered. Then you'd have to accept there might be a greater risk for them to get the vaccine. Given the unknowns, given the fact that everyone can respond differently to a medical intervention, right? And so that can be uncomfortable for people to walk the middle path and sit in the gray because it's not clear, mm-hmm. right? It's not, you do this, it's right, and you do that, it's wrong. It resolves cognitive dissonance. This was your question before. Mm-hmm. If you can go to an extreme, do you know that we're prone to mass delusions? Human Throughout human history, we are prone to mass delusions. That's an extreme end of cognitive bias. Do What's you know, a mass it, delusion? It are say, you talking it, about like the Salem witch trials? Example? That's one. Okay. okay. How about um, Nazi Germany? Oh, yeah. You know, good people engaged in the mass extermination of the Jewish people, right? Otherwise, what would be viewed as people who would have never done that individually mm-hmm. were somehow prone to the delusion that anything that um, has happened in their lives can be attributed to a, a, a group of people. Or there's a, there's, a, there's a race or a group of people that is less than or inferior. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very careful when our politicians are trying to create an in-group and an out-group. And they're trying to dehumanize others. Shame on you if you believe this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Shame on you if you're going to dehumanize somebody based on a decision that they're making for their own bodies or the health of the children. You are the ignorant one. And, you, and, and history will show that. History has always demonstrated that when you push to extremes, you are subject 
to extreme biases on one end and potentially delusions. Your mind is going to try to make sense of the uncertainty. That's why the there were the the, the witchcraft trials and the mass killing of women throughout the 16th, 17th centuries, right? It's because they didn't know what they didn't know, so they blame them. Mm-hmm. And we're all subject to that. So if we're all prone to bias, um, recognizing that, what other suggestions besides just sitting in front of a computer and, and searching? No, don't do not do that. So have conversations with people yeah. that um, are not like-minded. Sure. Be curious and interested in why they believe what they do. Don't try to convince them. That's the thing. <laughs> I, I think that's the <laughs> that, thing we that, all resort to is to try and tell people that they're wrong instead of listening to them and having a conversation. So you want to know an interesting tweet I decided to put out this week in preparation for this podcast. I said, um, if you are emotionally provoked um, when somebody has a, a viewpoint that's different than yours, you are regressing. And then I said, um, two opportunities exist if somebody has an opinion that's different than yours. One, you learn something new that could mm-hmm. modify or even change a viewpoint. Or two, you strengthen what you already know. Either way, you win. So there's a mindset that has to be adopted, um, an open one. And in our, if our universities, for example, and our educational system, Kelly, this is you, if the viewpoint in higher education is not, let's teach people how to critically think and open our minds and understand another person's viewpoint, well, then education only becomes more mass conditioning. It's just another authority figure tells you what you should think and you adopt that. Yes. Oh, I agree. But I'm going to tell you this. Now we go back to the bias. Remember, you have these educators believing that they are teaching critical thinking. And they're really not. So they don't, their bias is, if I teach this idea, that's critical thought. You know what I'm saying? Like they already believe they are. I don't believe that they're intentionally trying to necessarily brainwash i don't think they wake up and say i'm going but i think they really believe they are teaching critical thought which that that that's kind of like it's hard because they're provided a curriculum and they're teaching the curriculum now within that curriculum can't you don't you have the ability to be very creative absolutely yes you should probably take the curriculum and go some with some of the ideas that are there but you need to not necessarily follow step by step So our ultimate takeaway from this discussion, avoid the extremes, find the gray area. Live in the nuance. Yeah. You know, open your mind. And there has to be an acceptance here. Um, There has to be an acceptance to what human beings are prone to and vulnerable. And Sean, I'm sorry to have to go after you like that. Um, But there is this... There is a sometimes this blind allegiance to authority, which has created great problems throughout human history. And that you have a responsibility, in, in my opinion, in a free society. In a free society, you have the responsibility to value that freedom and to hold your politicians accountable. And if we're not aware of the different tactics 
that can be utilized on us to divide us, well, then we're going to be vulnerable and prone to getting pushed to those extremes. And who does that benefit? It doesn't benefit us. It doesn't benefit us as citizens. It only benefits a class of people who, whose life purpose is driven for that degree of power. Don't let their messages dehumanize others. So to do that, you have to be open to other viewpoints. And if it's different than yours, that's fine. You can respect that. It strengthens your viewpoint. But if you, I believe in individualism, right? Because that I can walk away and still make decisions that are in the best interest of myself and my family and respect your right to live the life that you want to live. We're losing that respect for each other and we're getting pushed towards collectivism in a way that is not benefiting society. It benefits a certain class of people. Be very careful about that. We're all vulnerable to it. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.